Hi, and welcome back to the Leading Language and Literature podcast with me, Chris Jordan. In this episode, I'm talking to Owen McCorthy. Owen is head of department in Bangkok and teaching the IGCSE and IBDP in English. He is an active participant on Twitter and can be relied upon to ignite, continue and support conversation for international English teachers. We discuss the best text he's ever read, taught or been taught, a quick introduction to his career to date, what he has seen or read or listened to in the last 12 months that has had the biggest impact on his practice the significant challenges he is working on with an IGCSC or IB English department, one area of his department's routine or approach that he's most satisfied with, what his department do in the key stage three years in terms of curriculum, and finally, Owen's perception on why improving teaching and learning can be a challenge in the international sector. Thanks again to Owen, who can always be relied upon to maintain the healthy culture of debate, sharing and discussion on Twitter, as well as the time he took to talk to me today. If you want to be kept up to date on when educational chat like this happens, then be sure to subscribe to the podcast and or follow me on Twitter at ChrisJordanHK. Here we go. Uh, okay, Owen, we'll start with a nice, easy one. What is the best text you've ever read, taught, or been taught? So I'm going to cheat on this one a little bit, and I'm going to separate the two. So I'll start with the best book I think I've ever read, and it's hard to quantify the best book you've ever read. But I think the book that had the most effect on me as a reader, probably A Little Life by Hanya Yanagihara, um, which may be a slightly controversial one because I know that it's, it's a bit of a cult classic, but it also can attract some controversy for being playing, I guess, a little bit too much on the tragedy. But I still have years and years after reading it for the first time, I still have moments where I'm walking on the road and I think about Jude and the rest of the characters and I'm right back in the book and right back in the story and I just think... It's rare, probably once in a lifetime that you have that kind of a relationship with a book or you have that kind of a, an experience with a book. So I would say that that's probably the one that I would go for having read myself. Um, in terms of the book that I've enjoyed teaching the most, um, it's a text that we teach here at AB, um, Kitchen by Banana Yoshimoto. Um beautiful Japanese novella translated into English. Um, and what I really love about it is the language is really quite spare, um, but it's just packed with so much meaning and, and, and beauty. And it's a real meaningful exploration of grief and loss and identity and family. And so we start our literature course in year 12 with um, Kitchen um, and it really hooks the kids because it's not what they're expecting. Probably they would have been used to very different kinds of text at GTSE. And they find it really challenging and they find it really eye-opening, I think, um, how so much meaning can be packed into so little language. And I really love that. I really love those light bulb moments that they have where we're reading it, where we're analyzing it. Um, so yeah, those might two choices even though you only act for one and <laughs> <laughs> two brilliant choices as well yeah i'm kind of quite proud of myself to be able to say that i've read 
um, both of them. And yeah, the the Hanya Yanagara one is definitely, we get like some of our year 11s reading it um, here. And I'm always, I don't know. I always feel like, I don't know, like what an appropriate age should be for the, for people. It's such a emotionally taxing book, isn't it? But um, mm. anyway, um, obviously I, I know that you're in um, uh, Bangkok currently, but I just wondered whether we could have a quick introduction to um, your your career in teaching today, Tohan. Yeah, sure. So I trained in Ireland um, in my local town in University College Cork. Um, and I also did my teacher training in the school that I went to, which uh, an Irish language school, Colossum Fairshig in, in Glanmire and Cork. And I, so I spent a year there, but I didn't go immediately into teaching after I did a master's degree in medieval and Renaissance literature after that, because I was really interested in, I guess, boosting my subject knowledge, particularly with Shakespeare. I felt like I really wanted to go into teaching with a, a very secure grasp on that. So I did my master's thesis on Shakespeare and and how he dealt with things like racism and sexism and anti-Semitism and 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 all those meaty things topic. Um, and then I moved to London um, after finishing my master, and I worked in London for three or four years in Alberton Community School. Um, started as an English teacher in twenty thirteen. And a year after that, I was promoted to progress leader, which was a kind of fusion, I guess, really, of the the, the data slash assessment side of things and, and the pastoral side of things, although we did have a, a non-teaching pastoral manager too. Um, and I left London in 2016 or 2017. And then I've been here at St. Andrews International School in Bangkok ever since. I moved here at the head of year originally, so um, joined as head of year seven in 2017, spent four years here um, as a head of year, and then two years ago, I moved over to head of English, and I've been kind of focusing on teaching and learning and, and, and my department and, and kind of where we're at ever since. Lovely stuff. Um, I didn't. I, I didn't know about your um, the 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 masters there that you mentioned actually about like the medieval and and um, and and sort of Shakespeare stuff as well. That's um, I always I always kind of think to myself whether I'd like to do a master, like go back and do the literature thing. I've I've got like I'm doing or nearly finished a master's in education. I do feel like I should put my put myself in the place of the kids again and sort of go back and do some lit stuff. But uh, I don't know. We'll wait and see. But yeah, um, in in terms of so you're, I mean, you came to my attention now and just just obviously as part of like the Twitter sphere, so to speak. And it's you know we, as I'm sure you do, I follow lots and lots of people who are based in the UK who are English teachers and as as useful as they are and as excellent as their output is. I I don't I don't know about you. I, I sort of feel a little bit uh, outside of that um, kind of a circle of of uh, contributors or commenters and stuff like that because we're in or I'm in uh, international teaching. So it's always really refreshing to see someone like yourself who you know from from the UK or Ireland who kind of is an English teacher but 
talking about all these things in a more international kind of setting. But what is it that you've um, read or seen or watched or listened to or whatever in the last 12 months um, that, that has or hasn't, you know, come via uh, Twitter that has had the biggest impact on your teaching practice? Um, so I think on that one, I it's more, I guess, a pattern or a kind of a trend of thing rather than one specific thing. I, I, I kind of call it the coaching book. So I think it kind of started with uh, Doug Lemoff and Teach Like a Champion. And then, of course, you had Tom Sherrington and Ali Caviglioli's walkthroughs. And then more recently, Michael Feely and Ben Carlin did the Teaching and Learning Playbook. And the one I'm reading at the moment is actually Craig Barton's Tip for Teachers. And I, I think... Those kinds of books are really invaluable for the the gain to the margins. I think it's Tom Sherrington who talked about the gain to the margins. And I think there had been a tendency for a very long time in teaching to try to demonstrate huge amounts of progress, both for the kids but also for teachers. So there's the sense that, you know, within a year, you should have transformed some aspect of your teaching. And I've always felt that that's really unrealistic. Um, I think it's pretty counterproductive. Um, so what I like about these kind of books, the coaching books um, that, that, that I kind of call them, is that you can really focus in on one aspect of something. So last year, I would really focus on, so you start off with that big question, right? Like, what do I want to improve? When you start off then with, I want to improve my questioning, but that's a monumental task, right? So you then have to break it down. And I guess thinking about the Doug Lemoff book, but what I, what I really liked with that was the concept of like ratio. So obviously the ratio of thinking in your classroom, the ratio of participation in your classroom and, and, and how difficult it is to measure those things. And then kind of looked at the walkthroughs and, and kind of start playing around with cold calling and and you know uh, show me board and things like that and experimenting in different ways and I think all of those books the ones that I've just mentioned have given me something new or something fresh so I think I like the simplicity of the walkthrough um, and, and kind of how easy they are to engage with. But then when I think about something like the teaching and learning playbook, what I really like about that is that they've included videos, right? You have you have access to videos of somebody else doing it, where it's broken down, and they think about all the lethal mutations that you know potentially could happen with this technique so that you're aware of that before you kind of before you I guess start trying to implement that in your classroom. And then I've been really loving the tip for teacher by Craig Barton because he will take one big thing like using mini whiteboards in the classroom and then you get 14, 15 different additional tips to really think about how you do it. And so one thing that I tried this week when I was using mini whiteboards, which is something that I picked up from that book, was actually going row by row. Because one of the things after mini whiteboards is you want to know in real time at the same time that all of the students understand the, the 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 content that you've 
either you know just explained or that they can remember the concept that you taught last week or whatever. There's always that opportunity for them to, I guess, try to change their answer and they see what everybody else has got. So I read this tip in the in the Craig Barrett book about doing it row by row because the people behind can't really see, obviously, and also the people in front of their face and you can't. So you get a real snapshot of everybody in the room without them really thinking about what other people are saying. Um, so I feel really fortunate that we have the kind of book, that we have the walkthroughs and the tip for teachers and the teaching and learning playbook. It's not something that we had when I started teaching first. And actually, there have been three or four things that I have focused on, let's say, in the last 24 months within my teaching that I think have cumulatively and over time had a disproportionately positive impact on my teaching relative to the amount of effort it took me to start playing around with them. Um, so like I say, the concept of ratio, the concept of math participation of what Craig Barton called it, um, obviously check for understanding it, Lemma and, and Tom Sherrington refer to it. So all of these things together cumulatively over 24 months have completely changed how I teach. Mm. I would think have made me a more effective teacher, but it within small steps rather than rather than trying to do it all at once and very specific, codified strategy, technique, you know, having models of excellence like you get in the teacher and learning playbook. Yeah, I think reading those kinds of texts has been really impactful, I guess, for me. Yeah, I think I've, I've thought about this a lot recently. The idea that, as you, I mean, as you said there, Owen, the, the fact that we didn't, or I didn't at least, and I'm sure you didn't either, have these books at the beginning of, of our careers. Like, a part of me thinks that, like, just, just getting through you know, the first year or two of teaching is, is so difficult. And the time you spent, you know, writing all those lesson plans and, you know, uh, trying to, trying to like watch other teachers and, and kind of trial and error. And it's pretty brutal trial and error at the very beginning of your career. I like, there's an argument to be made where like, I've seen Michaela and other schools sort of say, listen, if you don't have a PGCE, we don't care. We'll take you on and we'll train you up. There's an argument to be made now that, that a lot of young teachers can be more, thankfully, autodidactic because, you know, it depends on the book you're going to pick up. But the four that you've mentioned there, the three or four you've mentioned there, I would be putting those in the hands of a trainee teacher a hundred times out of a hundred and just saying, when you teach a week's full of, you know, lessons, you'll have 50 different questions about how do I do that better? Why didn't he behave in that situation? Why does she not blah, blah, blah? And the answers are in here. So rather than just leave them to kind of like uh, flounder or say, oh, well, come and watch me. I'm quite good at it. Um, those books, I completely agree with you. I think you can't digest them all, you know, as you say, in like a month's time. It does take a significant amount of time to 
experiment with them in your own context but yeah they 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 are invaluable i would agree with you um so you're, you're obviously in an igcsc well not obviously but you are working in a school that offers the igcsc and the the ibdp um what what are the sort of significant challenges um that you're working on either as uh as an individual or more 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 specifically as a head of department with the rest of your department what's something that you've kind of been talking about a lot this year or in in recent times in terms of what you want to improve i think specifically for an english department i think a huge challenge with our writing at the moment in terms of writing um and in, ter- in, in terms of quality of writing and, and the the kind of the cognitive demand of writing academically and, and, and how to do that effectively um, is a really important question for us. Um, and I think partly that's hangover of COVID. Um, obviously, very, very difficult to practice extended writing and, you know, to, to break down and to teach the constituent part of extended writing online. Um, so I think part of that is a hangover from uh, from from COVID, um, but equally I think it comes from a trend that happened in teaching and teaching of English for quite a long time, where we didn't explicitly teach these things. So we very much focused on content, very much focused on kind of you know student led interactive activity that would improve student subject knowledge in terms of the tech they were studying and I guess really focusing on on engagement and then I know I, I mean I don't know how you how what your experience of it but I found that in my time as a teacher of English that students really struggle with register with tone, with style, with making appropriate academic vocabulary choices. Um, and that that can linger, and that that gap, that writing gap can linger from key stage three right up until kind of key stage four and, uh, and five, although it, it does tend to improve, but it, it can't linger. So I guess one thing that we're trying to do here, and this is another thing that I saw on Twitter, to be honest, and I would love to reference the individual who I got sent from, but I can't for the life of me remember right now. Um, but working on a sentence curriculum and not actually throwing an essay question at the year seven class in term 1.1, but really honing in on specific sentence types and building them up over time, um, which is actually something that uh, David Dowd talked about well in in, in making meaning for English and, uh, and on his blog called starting in year seven, really thinking about effective, creating effective sentences to the correct character, right? So a lot of schools will start in term 1.1 with year seven on myth, legend, and fable unit. And I guess focusing on things like known a positive sentences or epithets and really hammering that and getting that really secure and, and having the student master that before they might move on to the next, you know, kind of sentence type. And doing that kind of, I find throughout year seven, 
and then slowly but surely building up to larger units of writing. Um, before really, I, I think really uh, a key day street student probably not ready to write an effective essay until about the beginning of year nine. So giving them a repertoire of sentences that they can practice, adapt, master, before expecting them to write a high-quality academic analytical essay is probably what we're working towards so that when they get to year 11, year 12, that they're thinking much more at the sentence level and doing that effectively because they have built up this repertoire over time instead of this very formulaic approach of, you know, still thinking to a year 11 kid, you should be writing your paragraphs using petal paragraphs or peel paragraphs or whatever other kind of acronym that we've used. Um, so that's where I would say we're at. And that's one of the things that I think mm. one of the challenges that has probably presented itself for a very long time, but we have been more explicitly confronted with it since COVID and since students stopped practicing extended writing because the students who would have picked it up by osmosis previously are no longer presenting that high quality work, right? Mm, yeah, I think oh, you've hit on something here, Owen. I like completely uh agree with uh, like thought about a lot recently myself yeah in terms of like the sentence rich uh curriculum like it's i suppose it's it's been around for like two or three years or something like that but it wasn't until i spoke to i think i spoke to donald hale um for this podcast and he sort of talked to about creative writing ones and i was like oh my god these are so good i was so excited to share them with the kids. The kids are excited to use them, et cetera, et cetera. And it got me thinking about, you know, what ones can we use in other forms of writing, so discursive writing or analytical writing or persuasive writing and blah, blah, blah. And there was, I think it was, there's someone called Kate Beatty on Twitter as well, who I think she posted something a while ago and I took some of those. I think it all goes back to like a blog from Chris Curtis in... I don't know. It was years ago. I certainly didn't read it when it was first put out there, but there was like a list on that of about 50 um, sentence types. And I was just like, oh my God. But you're so right to say that in the past, we weren't really, I think as a subject necessarily, we were doing like sentence starters. And it's like, make sure you start your sentence with this connotes. And it's like, well, it does help, but it's not exactly... It's it's not really kind of thinking at the, the as you say the sentence level of what like metacognitively the kids are going through in terms of what then needs to happen or what moves they need to make inside that sentence. Never mind the whole paragraph. And I think Daisy Christodoulou sort of I don't know who she was talking to. It was a long time ago, but I remember her saying that as English teachers, you're kind of doing three or four subjects in one. Because reading, yeah. reading in and of itself is its own subject. Grammar is probably in and of itself its own subject. Um, you're sort of every now and again having to be a little bit, you got to dabble in history a little bit with the context and wider kind of understandings. And then the writing thing, we're just like, well, you've read the book and you've, you've read the example, just, just write it. So it it's kind of stands to reason why we weren't doing it as much in the past, I suppose, or why the majority of teachers weren't doing it in the past. But 
I completely agree with you in terms of the fact that, um, or I completely, it resonates with me completely in the sense that this is the biggest thing that I've been trying to do in my own practice in the last, yeah, 12 months. And it has massively changed. I've had like sort of middle achieve, middle, middle attainment kids writing things. And then we go to moderation and teachers are saying, this is so good. This is incredible. Like how have they learned about, and it's quite formulaic. Like they've, you know, it can go wrong. When it goes wrong, it goes really wrong. Um, but just the, those, like you say, the positives and tricolon and subordinate starters and stuff like that, they 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 are transformative. And the kids get excited to use them because I think they know, they can feel, they can sense that the sentences sound a lot more, um, for one of a better way, sex. I think, <laughs> I think uh, yeah, I think you've hit on something there, though, in terms of like, the, the need for it not to be formulaic, which is why I think it's so important to build it up over time. Yeah. Because the more you build it up over time, the more secure it is for the students and the more they've mastered it. So that actually by the time they get to year 10 and they're doing a, you know, writing to narrate or a, a writing to describe, they're actively making choices. Mm. And I guess the difference between giving students a list of sentence starters every time they do a piece of writing and actually building a sentence curriculum, right? Like, we, you know, for a very long time, English teachers would have, you know, given sentence factors at the beginning of, of almost every writing task that were not really explicitly thought, and then there was no real time for that, you know, sustained independent practice. So never really embedded and they were never really making a choice whereas i guess if you're building a sentence curriculum over time from year seven all the way up through until the end of year 11 or the beginning of year 12 they end up making choices rather than following the formula yeah they can they can experiment with it and, and break the mm-hmm. rules and stuff like that so yeah um that so that's obviously one thing uh i've asked about one thing which yeah, you're focused on or you're 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 kind of looking to improve. But what's one area of the department's routine or approach that like you're particularly satisfied with um, at the moment? So I think um we have been working over the last two years on trying to embed more evidence-informed practices. And I know that this is going to sound very cliched, and I know that everybody's talking about retrieval practice, but that kind of, you know, would that's our entry point into, I guess, becoming a more evidence-informed department. And we have been experimenting with retrieval practice and kind of this year at Keith Day 3, I guess, embedding it more. Um, this year is really kind of the first year, actually, where... In most of our key stage three units of work now, there's kind of an expectation that you would see a form of retrieval practice in every lesson. Um, so I'm really pleased with that, not because it's perfect, because I don't think anything is ever going to be perfect in a curriculum. You're always going to need to refine and build, and it's always going to need to be kind of constantly improved, but because of what it signified, which is, a, I guess, an awareness of more, at least, of all of the wealth of information that we have now that are from research into 
what the backpack looked like. Um, and I'm, you know, we will continue to, to embed that. And obviously, we want to move toward it where kind of automatic for us to do this and not because obviously there's huge risk with retrieval practice of lethal mutation or it becoming it becoming formulaic and a bit kind of electrical through the motions with this one. So obviously when you when you start experimenting with retrieval practice for easy to have that kind of five question do now quit, right? Because that's not necessarily cognitively demanding for the teacher to kind of organize or, or to arrange. But of course, there are things around retrieval practice that have to happen for it to be effective. So, you know, it ha- at a minimum, it has to be from memory, right? And actually constantly going over that as a routine and as a process, I think it's really important because the retrieval practice that happened in the classroom is never going to be enough. What we're actually trying to do is we're actually trying to model the student how they can revise and how they can make the best advantage of their cognitive architecture to learn as part of their revision. So, you know, making sure that they remember that you can't use your notes, have to be from memory, the importance of actually giving the corrective feedback afterward so that you don't embed misconception, but equally, you know, you're more likely to remember something if you got it wrong on the first retrieval, and then you get the correct feedback, and it, it actually, the citation might need to be required on that one. I do remember reading that particular point, but somebody who is perhaps more expert in cognitive science maybe would correct me on that. But that is kind of one area of our practice where we're kind of developing an awareness of evidence-informed practices where we've been trialing them and now we're kind of embedding. And that's something that I'm kind of really happy. Yeah, that's really good. No, I, I think you are definitely right to say that, although I'm not a cognitive scientist myself either. Um, but yeah, I, I, I can certainly remember reading that as well myself. And it, it worried me a lot. A lot of that stuff that was coming out about the lethal mutations around retrieval practice, because I've certainly encountered people in uh, international teaching where the minute you use a term like that, you know, there's, there's eye rolls and there's kind of like, Oh, you know, I've, I've heard they're all doing that in the UK and blah, blah, blah. And I was really worried when I saw all that stuff coming out about lethal mutation, that it was going to be, you know, fuel for the fire for those people who, you know, were maybe a little bit more reluctant to, to take it on board. But I think you've nailed it there in terms of um, explaining what, the, the 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 appropriate um kind of approach should be and um i think we all know or i think i'd like to think most people know that it's a massively beneficial strategy when used um correctly so you do you do igcse and, and uh, ib um owen what what's the deal with your key stage three then are you are you an myp school are you kind of like a middle years thing have you got like an internal curriculum and how have you kind of organized um that that curriculum so we do a, a modified version of the national curriculum in Britain, um, essentially. But actually, our key phase three curriculum is something that really excites me and something that I, I love to talk about. So our curriculum at key phase three, I would say, can be narrowed down to two quotations that everybody will know. Um, 
Christian Council, I think, once said that, you know, your curriculum should be a narrative, right? Um, and that it should tell a story over time. And I think John Thompson, Mary Maya said the key to three should be the intellectual bedrock of, you know, everything that your students do. So we've really kind of taken that to heart to plan the curriculum that is essentially the narrative of English over time. So we look at how the language emerged and developed, and we look at how the literary heritage emerged and developed. So the very first, the two first units that we do in year seven, uh, we do the oral tradition, we do legend, myth, and fables, and then the second uh, unit that we do is all around kind of the history of language and how language generally developed, and then kind of zoom in specifically on kind of major events in, in the English language. And then from there, we're trying to build up their knowledge over time of both the language itself through things like authentic curriculum and the literary heritage. We do a lot of work on things like genre. We have a, a brilliant unit in year nine around murder mystery, but also kind of equally around the emergence of the novel as a popular form of um, kind of a popular tech type, I guess, um, which students are to pray that it's so recent. I mean, I, I you know, I say recent in, in the larger history of things. But when, you know, you start in year seven and, and you're learning about the development of writing in, you know, Mesopotamia in essentially ancient history, and then you realize that the novel of the form kind of emerged about you know, between two to three hundred years ago, that's a bit of a shocking moment for students, right? So we are trying to tell them a story around how the language they speak in the classroom became what it is today and around how literature grew, developed, changed, adapted over time. So that when they're reading a graphic novel, uh, either at Key Stage 3 or in uh, LIB, they can kind of place it within a context of, you know, how this form had developed over time and, and, and a kind of place within its historical kind of perspective, I guess. Um, and all of that work started at Key Stage 3. Um, so one... There's a lot of knowledge in there, obviously, which it's great if you can retrieve that knowledge, but you have to, it, it has to be, you know, learning that stick that they say again, it, speaking in cliche. But one thing that we do is we try to attach a lot of that knowledge to concept. And again, this is not my idea. You know, if if any English teacher ahead of English read the book around the teaching of English, I would definitely suggest that people read the the trouble with uh, English. Um, by Sam Gibb and Tony Hellman, which talked about a concept-led curriculum. Um, and I think that's really important, because if you're going to have a knowledge-rich curriculum, and if your curriculum is going to be, you know, dense with knowledge, the students have to be able to connect that knowledge in some way. Um, so I think the idea of organizing your curriculum around kind of bigger concepts, like the idea that, you know, a text is a construct, and then breaking that down into a more constituent second order concept. The idea of narratology, the idea of genre as a concept, the idea of characterization as a concept, that it becomes 
knowledge that is flexible for them in their learning rather than the disjointed, disconnected pieces of kind of random knowledge floating in some sort of an ether, right? So what you don't want to happen is for kids to say, oh, I remember we did something like this in year seven, but then not able, not being able to explain it or not being able to connect it with what they're doing. Mm. Um, so that those are the kind of the, the, the strand of our curriculum, I would say. The idea that it is a narrative that we're, we're kind of unfolding over time. The idea that it is fundamentally the intellectual kind of foundation of everything that will come in Keycase 4 and 5, and I get the importance of concept. I would, you know, again, none of this is perfect, and I would definitely say that as a team, we would probably all recognize that we, we are still working on teaching our subject conceptually mm. um, and you know, we can all probably improve in being maybe a bit more explicit in that all, over time as well. But yeah, it's really exciting. It, it, this is really thrilling work when you sit down with your curriculum and you think of it in the, in, in imaginative way and in huge levels of depth and detail and think about exactly what you're including, what text you're using to exemplify your concept, how you're going to teach your concept. I mean, I can't think of anything more exciting mm. than at the head of the park, especially. Yeah, I agree. I, I think you said it at the very top of the answer there, but being passionate or being excited about, uh, excited about uh, Key Stage 3, it's almost like... Um, I don't know. Sometimes when you say that, you feel like the person who's hearing it might be surprised to hear it. But I would, I would completely agree with you on that one. I think, particularly if you're an IGCSE school or a GCSE school, like you, you, you don't have that same kind of uh, restraint or constraint that um, the outside kind of uh, curriculum uh, places upon you and you can just do anything with it. And I, I'm at an NYP school currently, and I used to work at a school that was modeled off of the old kind of uh, British national curriculum. And I really wish I could take what I know now about NYP and go back to a school like yours, which, which, you know, is, is free to decide how long a summative should be, the nature of what a summative should be, what criteria you're, you're assessing for and, and, um, what the, what the structure of the, 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 the curriculum can look like. A lot of what you were saying reminds me of, um, you know, the, the David Didao kind of, uh, making meaning in English. Well, he doesn't necessarily mention it in making meaning in English, but, um, I, I interviewed him for this podcast and he kind of talked about the trust in the UK that he's affiliated with or teaches for. And it, it sounds exactly like that, starting with the, the beginnings of English and working the way up to, as you say, like the novel is a relatively new idea and things like the Gothic and things like science fiction and stuff are relatively kind of infantile, not in a academic way but in a in a kind of age sense they're they're toddlers in respect of you know comparing it to like the odyssey or those myths and those kind of things so yeah i i share your passion where there with the key stage three stuff i absolutely i'm an myp coordinator myself so i love um i love uh discussions about or considerations of, of curriculum and stuff so it's great um but you mentioned quite a lot there 
I mean, throughout the course of the interview, you've mentioned so many different writers, um, thinkers, talkers, uh, heroes, really, your, your Christine Councils and your Sam Gibbs and your um, John Tomsets and everyone else. But um, you kind of, uh, you posted on Twitter a couple of months ago, maybe two months ago, and um, I can't remember the, the tweet word for word, but it was something on the, along the lines of, I think you just purchased a book or two and you kind of pose the question, why don't we have an international teaching the same kind of consistency of terminology or nomenclature or, 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 or language, I guess, uh, maybe even discussion that seems to be happening in the UK on the surface of things, certainly the people who use Twitter or maybe in the US as well. Um, and so in, in your experience, Owen, like what, um, this is something I've thought about a lot and I, I definitely experienced it firsthand. But what's your perception on the difficulty of improving teaching and learning in the international sector? Do you think there is a difference between what it's like to teach in an international school and what it must be like to teach at home in a state school and, and the nature of improvement in those respective contexts? Mm. No, oh, the tweet that you're referring to, I think, is, I think what I, I actually have it here to record it. In US and UK school, codified repertoires of technique based on the shared language used at the whole school level seem to be a popular approach to school uh, improvement. Haven't seen much of, or know much of the happening in international school, and I wonder why. And there was a really fascinating kind of perspective around that from, from quite a few people. But I think lots of us come back to the absence of Ofsted, which when you're in the UK, um, sounds like a dream. And it is, it's very liberating to a certain extent, right? When you're not, when, when you don't feel constrained by the diktat of an external regulator, it is liberating and it is freeing. But the flip side of that is that lots of the great stuff that's happening in the UK at the moment, lots of the amazing work that's happening in the UK, in the UK around the curriculum, around teaching and learning, have fundamentally been inspired by diktat from Athens. And there's a huge contradiction there, right, that we can recognise that a, an accountability system that leads to teachers being often in the midst of a well-being crisis is the same regulator that had inspired to a large extent, greater or lesser extent, I'm sure people will feel, feel differently about that, some brilliant work. So when you take off that out of the picture, it becomes dependent on individuals. And that's a lot more difficult. It is a lot more difficult for a leadership team in a school to drive the, the, the same kind of improvement that you can see from a big organization like Ofsted. So that seemed to be a common kind of feeling in that thread with that the absence of Ofsted is a double-edged sword. It is undoubtedly a positive for teacher well-being, but equally that 
the lack of an external motivator can sometimes mean that maybe we're not moving or we're not changing at the same pace as perhaps you say schools um, appear to have changed. Since in or around 2015, I think it was 2015 when they changed their framework to kind of move away from data and kind of focus on the curriculum. Um, that's one aspect of it. Um, I think another aspect of it is I guess uh, turnover in international schools is always going to be higher than you than you are going to have in in a state school in the UK or in Ireland or in the US, um, which makes something like a, a codified framework of teaching and learning quite difficult because let's say you have the international school a way of doing things. And if that is like a, a lot of what's happening in the UK is based around, you know, war and strict behavior policy, cognitive science and, you know, retrieval practice, so on and so forth. If the staff that you're recruiting are inexperienced in those things, then you have to train them up. And you may have to train them up on three, four, five different aspects of your way of doing things. And then they may leave in two years and you're back to square one. So there's a logistical difficulty in having that kind of an approach. And I think that book, The Teaching and Learning Playbook, um, is the product, I believe, of a process that happened in different Academy. In, in, in the UK that happened over time. Um, and the strategy and the technique that are in there are strategy and technique that have been embedded in that particular school, which I'm sure they would refer to it the distant way or, or you know, the distant approach or whatever. And it's just, it is a lot more difficult to replicate that in an international context where turnover tends to be higher. Um, and also part, part of the reason why people are going international is to start next then because they want to leave those kinds of systems, right? So they want to, you know, feel as though they have more freedom or that they have more, I mean, I guess the word we would use is autonomy, but I, I, I personally have, I would contend with the idea that autonomy means doing whatever you want. <laughs> which seems to be a, a, a misconception that some people have, right? So I think those two things, the lack of an external regulator, uh, turnover being quite high, and the final point I guess I would make is the difficulty in collaborating across schools in much the same way that schools in the UK do, or at least trust schools in the UK. So you see these amazing CPD days happening <laughs> on Twitter in these trust schools where, you know, they're in this beautiful lecture hall in a school somewhere in the north of England, and they have 200 teachers, and they have the brilliant CPD being led by Mary Myers and Tom Sherrington, and you can't replicate that in an international school. Especially if you're like single international school and not part of it like a wider group um i'm quite lucky to a certain extent in that north anglia as a wider group does provide us with like group-wide cpd and so on and so forth 
But that's another reason why I guess it can be more difficult to kind of implement these kind of things. Mm, yeah, I would. I, I think um, you, you raise a really good point there, Owen, that I hadn't really thought of before. The people who go into international teaching go into international teaching because they're maybe in some cases kind of sick of that particular um, system of constantly being checked up on and constantly being judged and constantly feeling kind of, you know, that their feet are, you know, um, against uh, the fire or so to speak. And it kind of stands to reason that once you get to a place overseas where those diktats are taken away, you can kind of almost metaphorically luxuriate a little bit more in enjoying your subject and just enjoying delving into the subject with more um, sophistication or depth or, or, or whatever. But I feel, yeah, I, I, I would agree with everything you said there. I think I, I, I've, I asked the same thing to Dan Rosen, who's the, uh, I think he's head of the high school, a high school in Dusseldorf um, uh, a mm. couple of weeks ago. And he kind of said the same thing. He's kind of like, it's up to the leadership to kind of drive that sense of why it's important to improve. And it's up to them to show that, you know, this is an expectation of of working here and and, and this kind of thing. But I feel like that one thing that maybe also comes into play is just the socioeconomic situation that a lot of the kids are in in international schools where it's like if you if you fail your Ofsted you know if you struggle with your Ofsted inspection and you've got you know uh, um, a a less than adequate rating and this kind of thing that's bad enough but you also know on like a more humanistic and less bureaucratic level the kids in the classroom are you know their future depends on you to a certain extent. You know, you owe them 1% of their, their, their future, so to speak. You're really helping to build their prospects after school. I don't know about you working in the international sector. Sometimes I think to myself, I am very, very, very replaceable. I'm incredibly replaceable. Like if I was to leave tomorrow, yeah, I'd like to think that a lot of students like the subject because I'm passionate and, and a relatively you know, adequate teacher. And I'd like to think that they have scored well on their external examinations because of, you know, for the same reasons. But I feel like I could quite easily be replaced by someone else who would come in and do the same job and it wouldn't make a massive difference um, to the students. And similarly, I don't know about in, in, in Bangkok, in Hong Kong, the tutoring um, culture is massive. It's huge, I think. One of the girls in uh, IB, in my school, uh, at the IBDP, she apparently did one of her economics or business kind of uh, projects. I'm not really sure uh, what it was, but she looked into the amount of money being spent over the course of a child's education in Hong Kong um, compared with, you know, the school fees they were paying versus the tutoring fees. And she found on average two thirds of parents were paying more in tutor fees over the course of a 12-year education or a 13-year education than the school fees themselves. That is crazy to me. That is absolutely insane that 
Um, just, the, just the amount of money that, and and it's. I don't think these families are families that are driving rows in Rolls Royces and living in the absolute uh, top of the range houses necessarily. I think they're just caught up in this really destructive arms war to get their kids to university, to the top of the class, and uh, to 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 ace these exams and. Yeah, it's. Uh, but I think what what I'm trying to say in a very convoluted way is that it's dangerous to assume as a teacher that just because your class ended up with all A stars and A's and B's and stuff like that, that you had, you know, a massively a massively significant hand in that. You know, I think you could. I think you could roll up on the first day and do pass paper after pass paper after pass paper and just teach with absolutely no love or 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 kind of passion and 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 no real kind of cognitive science or or um you know modern or relatively modern um what's the word kind of uh innovation and the kids would still be getting a stars a's and b's you might you might there might be kids who get c's that you could have you know helped to get a b and you know, ad infinitum going up, upwards, like kids who, who who could have got an A star who end up getting an A. But I think a lot of teachers end up, like they finish the year and maybe they give themselves a bit too much of a pat on the back and think, you know, I've 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 really done right by the kids there. And I don't know, like in, I've, I've been in a, international education 12 years and I'm not getting results that are that much better in my 12th year that, than than my first year in international education. So yeah, I'm not necessarily the biggest variable there. Would you is that is that also the case in Bangkok or oh yeah, I mean I get there two 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 points to that. Um I think if we're thinking about that kind of in the context of why it might be slightly difficult to improve teaching and learning. Um, when we talk with socioeconomic the kids and stated for the kids, it definitely makes them feel less tightly. And to a certain extent, that can make it feel less rewarding. Um, so that, I guess, yeah, could be a, a, a demotivating factor um, in terms of teacher development, because if you feel as though the kid will achieve either despite you or regardless of you, then that would, I guess, have a, a demotivating effect. I mean, if I was having a conversation with somebody on my team where I would, you know, we were in, in the court of test feedback on a, a learning walk or an observation or whatever. And <laughs> if their motivation for not really feeling like they needed to improve with that, it doesn't matter anyway, the kids are going to get a good result, then I guess my response to that would be very much around the purpose of education from for me, and I would like to think for most people, it's not necessarily always the result. Because to be honest, when I went to university, my approach to learning was to cram and learn by rote 
the month before my final, but I can't remember any of that now, right? Like for the for the most part, a lot of that knowledge is gone and a lot of that knowledge has disappeared and been replaced by knowledge that I picked up from teaching, et cetera, et cetera. I want the students who have been in my classroom for two years to be able to take that knowledge into the world, regardless of whether they're studying English or not, and to be able to take part in cultural activity and know and, and have the knowledge to be able to not just understand it, but to interpret it and, 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 and to get enjoyment out of it. I want my students to be able to, I don't know, be sitting around dinner in a nice restaurant, whether it's in Bangkok, Hong Kong, London, or Cork, and to be able to engage in conversation around books, around literature, around film, around all of these different things, and to be able to bring the knowledge that they picked up in my classroom with them and, and be a well-rounded individual in, in that sense. Mm. And I guess how I have managed to keep myself motivated in the face of, you know, very highly achieving students who you could argue may still get good exam grade if I was their teacher or not. I think, yeah, um, I, that is like such a nice way of putting it. Like, oh, and particularly, I mean, and that applies to everyone, doesn't it? It kind of applies to the 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 more kind of um, privileged kids um, who, who can't afford to go to these kind of uh, expensive schools, but also students in London, students in Cork, students in Glasgow, wherever, where, yeah, I think I, I echo that completely in terms of it's not necessarily like entirely well it's definitely not entirely about the result you do want them to have that cultural capital and have those conversations with you know a university interview a, a first date uh mom and dad family um in-laws blah 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 so i think that is a really nice way of framing it yeah you're absolutely right um so yeah the only the only thing that remains for me to say really is thank you very much for giving you giving up uh, a bit of your afternoon on a friday and um, to chat with me today i've always kind of i've always enjoyed um um your stuff on twitter and, and having spoke to you today it's it's really nice to hear someone who's uh, obviously personally uh invested in getting better at their job and 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 um helping the students but also you sound like a a really good head of department to work for. And um, yeah, I, I think it's um, it'd be fantastic place to work if you were lucky enough to be working underneath you. So um, thank you very much for your time today and uh, best of luck with the rest of the academic year. Thank you. Thank, thanks for inviting me, Chris. It was a real honor to be invited onto your podcast. I've been a listener for a very long time. So it was a really pleasant right to, to receive your invite.